All right. That is Indiana Jones and John Williams' music score. I'll tell you, John Williams has more famous movie scores than anyone you know. Think about it. Jaws, Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, E.T., Schindler's List, the Olympic fanfare. Oh, and this little movie called Star Wars that hardly anyone saw. I'm sure you don't know that theme. John Williams is a legend, and so is Indiana Jones. The first Indiana Jones movie came out in 1981 and really was the story of the 80s, with the second and third coming out in 1984 and 1989. I have always loved Indiana Jones, and why I'm starting with this today is I am calling this summer, personally for me, the summer of Indiana Jones. Why? Well, this summer I have two trips planned, the first I just completed, that fall right into this theme. For those of you that follow me on social media, you know that I just got back from spending about 12 days in Peru. It was an incredible experience. I'm going to tell you a bit about it today. And the second, I will give a little teaser for right now. In August, I am going to be going to Petra, Jordan, and actually a part of an archaeological dig. Yeah, the same places that you see those you know, temples built out of the side of the sand wall. I'm going to be there with a team uh, on an archaeological dig. How, I, how that happened, I'll tell you later. That's for another episode. But today, part one of my summer of Indiana Jones perusing through Peru. Now, by the way, just one quick bit of uh, trivia here. Peruse, I looked this word up. It's what is called a contronym. A contronym means that the same word can have two different definitions or two different meanings that actually contradict each other, that go exactly against each other. So what does the word peruse mean? Peruse on one hand can mean to examine something or consider something with great attention and detail. Definition two is to read or look at something in a relaxed way or to skim casually. And I thought about it. That's exactly what I did on my trip to Peru. Part of me read a couple books before I went to Peru. I really wanted to throw myself in the culture to learn the history and to come out of this trip with some takeaways and something I could talk about on the podcast. But the other part of me really was just perusing in the sense of I was enjoying a vacation in a beautiful place in a foreign land and just having a great time. So today, I'm going to tell you about how my experience went perusing through Peru and perusing through Peru. And so where do we start? Of course, we'll start with a little bit of history. It's the turn of the century. No, not the 21st century, the 20th century. The year is 1900. And at this time in world history, the quickest way to fame, the quickest way to putting yourself on the map, literally, was exploring. If you could discover something, if you could do something or go somewhere that no one had ever gone before, then you could rise to the tops of the history books and have instant fame. A lot of people turned this instant fame into political careers. Think about Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's one of the four presidents on Mount Rushmore. And for a lot of the world, him being president of the United States isn't even what made him famous. It was the adventurer. It was the explorer in him and the things that he did that really gave him this international prominence. 
Well, this was also the time that the National Geographic magazine really started to fill the homes of people all over the world. And they were blown away by all of these places in the world that had gone undiscovered. And suddenly now people were having this curiosity to go beyond their station and to find new things. It wasn't that long before that the Rosetta Stone was found, and all of a sudden we now could start to translate some Egyptian hieroglyphics and this amazing interest and curiosity in Egypt and those civilizations. Things were being uncovered on the daily. This was the period of time that people were saying, well, what's the highest mountain? Can we climb it? What's it going to take? Man, Mount Everest, like that is high. Can a human being possibly do it? You had explorers that made it a goal to get to the North Pole. What would they find there? And these dog sled teams to do it. And this, if you were a young person in this period of time, would have swept you up with this excitement. Now, our story today centers around a man named Hiram Bingham. Hiram Bingham was born in Hawaii, and his parents were explorers themselves. His grandfather, actually, was one of the first white people to show up on the Hawaiian islands. Now, he did so as a missionary. He, his family were Calvinists, and their goal was to build churches and teach the islanders of Hawaii religion. By the way, another little fact, the, at that time when his grandpa showed up in the Hawaiian Islands, they weren't called the Hawaiian Islands, they were called the Sandwich Islands. And to the natives, they wanted to then teach them religion. They wanted to teach them about God. His father followed in the same footsteps, and Hiram Bingham was then born in really an unsettled Hawaii at the turn of the century and wanted to explore the same way his grandfather did. He comes to the United States, goes to school, becomes a professor at Yale University, but the classroom wasn't exciting enough for Hiram Bingham. He wanted also to be famous. And to be honest, he really didn't care that much about what he found. He just wanted to find something. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to leave a mark on this world. Now, like I said at this time, everyone was talking about Egypt and Europe and these ancient civilizations, but not very much was going on in South America. People were starting to find things from the Aztecs, the Mayans, and the Incas, but no one really cared as much from an international perspective about what was happening in South America. Well, for Hiram Bingham, that represented an opportunity. So we started reading specifically about the Incas. Now, if you don't know very much about the Incas, I didn't either before this trip to Peru, but they really rose to power in the middle of the 1200s. And really the height of their empire went from the 1200s to the late 1500s before they were conquered by the Spanish. Now, the center, the empire, the political and military center of Peru and the Incan civilization at this time was the city of Cusco. Cusco literally means center. It was in the middle of everything. And the Incan civilization was very, very fascinating. One, they didn't have a written language. So a lot of what we know about them originally was just kind of guesswork. 
it was trying to uncover clue after clue and put together this puzzle of what we thought these people were like and what they did. And a phrase that you've probably heard before is the Inca Trail. Now, you've probably heard about the Inca Trail as like that's the hike you take in order to get to Machu Picchu, the ancient historical site. But really, that's a misnomer. Inca trails were what connected all of these cities throughout South America and Inca civilization throughout the Andes Mountains. Everywhere they went on foot. And if you looked at Cusco in that period of time, you would then find trails leading and connecting city to city to city. They actually said that in that period of time, they could catch a fish on the coast and get it to Cusco to still be fresh and still have it that same day. And to give you a feel for what an accomplishment that was, on my trip, I flew into Lima, the now capital of Peru, a city of over 10 million people, and took an hour and 15 minute flight to get to Cusco. Well, they were so advanced with their Inca Trail system that they would get those fish from the coast to the inlands to these cities within the Incan civilization same day. Now, Hiram Bingham started to become fascinated with the Inca Empire. He'd read more and more about them, and in a lot of his readings, he started to kind of hear whispers about a lost city, an ancient city that, was, uh, that wasn't discovered, that wasn't found. And, of course, this type of you know reading was stuff that was out there all the time. People were talking about Atlantis. They were talking about, you know, what are these civilizations that we haven't uncovered yet? And he felt confident that if he went down with his adventurer spirit and the knowledge that he had he had attained as a professor reading about this civilization, that he might get so lucky as to find this lost city of the Incas. Learning the story of Hiram Bingham taught me a lesson. You know, sometimes in life, you go out searching for something in particular, but you don't necessarily find what you're looking for, but what you end up finding is better than maybe what you'd even hoped for or ever thought of or imagined in the first place. To me, that's Hiram Bingham. It wasn't the fact that he knew exactly what he was going down there to do and to find and what he would be remembered for. It's the fact that he went. It's the fact that in the early 1900s, the year was 1911, he then gathered an expedition crew and headed to South America in search of something. One of the books I read prior to this trip was a book by Mark Adams called Turn Right at Machu Picchu. And in his book, uh, he basically, on the 100th year anniversary of Hiram's Bingham, Hiram Bingham's 1911 expedition, he tried to retrace his steps. And he talks about going through the Andes Mountains and the hikes and the mules falling off the side of mountains and the mudslides and the high temperatures and the low temperatures and his guide being smacked in the face with a bamboo tree and almost taking his eyeball out. And all of this happened with a ton of money from a professional reporter and writer in the year 2011. As I was in the Peruvian countryside there looking at the Andes Mountains for the first time and seeing how treacherous the terrain is, how steep, how jagged they are, and how 
how much vegetation there is, I can't even begin to describe how difficult this expedition must have been for Hiram Bingham in 1911. He got by with just a few friends and then just ultimately paid some locals to help him out through different times and mules that would help carry supplies and cook and provide for food. And all of this is going along uncharted territory. He's looking at history books that are written before about people that didn't even have a written language of them trying to put clues together. I can't imagine how helpless he must have felt. Now, he had a backup plan. He basically said, man, if we don't find an ancient city, if we don't find a lost city here, I'm going to at least climb a mountain that I think is the highest peak in the Southern Hemisphere in South America at that time. They ended up being wrong, and actually someone beat him to the punch on that. But luckily it didn't matter, because Hiram Bingham wasn't going to go down to the history books for climbing a mountain. It would be for something a little bit cooler than that. So, they're about a month into the expedition, and they've found some different historical sites at this point. They're trying to uncover it. It was hard to know what was part of the Incan civilization, what wasn't. They often would have locals tell them stories of, oh, people used to live here, people used to live here, and they would follow a lot of leads from locals that amounted to absolutely nothing. And you could see how discouraging this might have been at the time. Well, there was one night in particular that they stopped in a town, just like any other regular town, along the Inca Trail system of these roads that went through the Andes Mountains. And when I say roads, I'm talking about trails for the most part that were typically just wide enough for one mule to cross, single file, one at a time. Landslides were common. All of a sudden, the trails became a part of the bottom of the river. Oh, and by the way, these raging rivers, whenever they had to cross them, they had to hand-make bridges out of bamboo on the fly and then go across these raging rivers uh, in these you know, man-made bridges on the spot. Well, one night in one of these towns, the locals started to get kind of drunk, party started happening, and Hiram heard some of the locals, including the bartender, talk about the city that was up on top of the hill. And he kind of took note of that, went to bed. Everyone had a you know party drunken night before. He comes back the next morning and goes to the bartender once everyone's sobered up a bit. And he said, hey, last night you were talking about this city up on the hill. What's the story there? And he goes, oh, I'm not really sure, but I think that local was the one talking about it. And Hiram goes and tracks down that local that was talking about the city up on the hill and convinces him to take him to the hill. Now, I'm saying hill. That is the wrong term to use. It is a mountaintop. And the thing that's interesting about this area of the Andes is these peaks, these mountaintops are literally everywhere, and it's thousands of feet up from where they are at the bottom of these valleys along the riverbed and the Inca trails to the tops of these mountains. Now, these mountain peaks, there was nothing special about 
that particular one. If you were going to climb every mountain peak of the Andes, it could be a lifetime achievement. But Hiram Bingham wanted to take this lead, and he basically said, oh, I'll pay you like the equivalent of what would be a dollar today to take me up there. And he goes, all right, white guy, let's do it. The rest of Hiram Bingham's team didn't even want to go because they'd followed a lot of these, you know, goose chases before that didn't amount to anything. So the rest of his team stayed down. Meanwhile, Hiram Bingham and one of the Peruvian locals start heading up this mountain. With machete in hand, trying to clear a path, it takes more than six hours to get to the top of what we would now call Machu Picchu. There was a family living at the top of Machu Picchu. They were farming the land. And the first person that saw Hiram Bingham at the top was a 12-year-old boy at the time. And he says, oh, oh, do you want me to show you kind of these old buildings that we play around in? And what was nuts is when Hiram Bingham got there, he didn't see the view of Machu Picchu that you've probably seen pictures of today with the mountains in the background and then looking down from this like scenic viewpoint up above this ancient city. Well, what he saw were maybe some remnants of buildings but all of them overgrown with vegetation, with shrubbery, with trees. And it wasn't until he got right up close and personal to these buildings that he realized, oh, this wasn't just one ruin here. This is a city that was built on a mountaintop that was leveled and flattened out in the 1400s. Imagine that! The technology that they had then that they were able to flatten out the top of this mountain and turn it into a full-blown city, Machu Picchu. Hiram Bingham didn't necessarily understand right at the beginning the importance, the impact of his discovery, but he knew he was on to something. So he went back down later that night, got the rest of his team, got everyone else to made the trek, and brought some locals to help start to clear the trees, the shrubbery, and really begin the excavation process. And over time, started to find just how important this civilization was. Now, my first experience at Machu Picchu. We get there, and it was early in the morning, And there was some serious, serious cloud cover. I mean, we literally were in the clouds. Machu Picchu is so high up. And when we got there at the beginning, we could see nothing. I'd seen pictures before, so I knew what I was supposed to be looking at. But it was so foggy. And so, I mean, imagine being in San Francisco, right, in the morning and like you can't even see the Golden Gate Bridge. That's what it was like. And what was so cool about our time at Machu Picchu as we took the tour there is the cloud layer started to burn off bit by bit by bit. And the view of this civilization became more and more clear. And after an hour or two of us being there, the clouds had fully burned through, the sun was out, the sun was shining, and then you were able to get the full perspective of where you are. Now, people ask me, what is Machu Picchu like? And I said, well, just the historical site itself 
is incredible. Now, I've been to Pompeii. That's what I would compare it to. Like the city, the way that these ruins were put in place, it was, had a similar feel to Pompeii. It's absolutely incredible. And it would be incredible on its own just to see these buildings. Then the surroundings, the scenery, where you are is breathtaking even without a civilization there. You could drive up to the top of Machu Picchu, forget the ruins, and just do a 360 glance around where you were standing, and your jaw would be on the ground. But then you put the two of those things together, and it's hard to put into words how spectacular this place really is. And it was so cool in our experience there that morning to see, you know, at the beginning of the day, we really didn't know where we were or what we were looking at. And then slowly to uncover as the cloud cover burned through how amazing it was. And then toward the end to just be like, wow, where am I? This was the feel that Hiram Bingham had. As they slowly started to take the trees away, as they slowly started to clear the vegetation, all of a sudden he realized, well, if he was looking for a lost city of the Incas, he'd found it. Maybe he didn't find the city that he thought he was looking for, but he found an incredible ancient Incan city on top of a mountain built in the 1400s. Now, what's so unique about Machu Picchu is, you know, there were cities like this all over Peru, all over the Incan Empire, but when the Spanish came to conquer in the 1500s, they destroyed most of these places. Well, Machu Picchu lucked out because of its location, because of geography. The Spanish never knew it was there. They never got up to Machu Picchu and didn't have the chance to destroy it. So luckily, it was there pretty much untouched when Hiram Bingham photographed it and brought attention to it for the first time. Hiram Bingham then got the fame he was looking for. In 1911, or just after, National Geographic dedicated an entire issue to this side of Machu Picchu and had a threefold, uh, you know, like centerfold um, of Machu Picchu and a similar picture to what you're probably thinking of when you think of Machu Picchu today. So Hiram Bingham went back to Yale University. He then taught about his findings. He became an expert in South America, in the Incan civilization specifically. And he was then known in America as the man who discovered Machu Picchu. Now, of course, that's kind of a tough word because like, he didn't discover it. Locals knew it was there. There was a family living there. But what he did is he was the first person to recognize its importance and let everyone know about what was on top of that mountain at Machu Picchu. Now, I'm going to include on social media some of these pictures. One of the pictures you're going to see is a picture of Hiram Bingham standing in front of his horse with a hat on and his explorer garb. He's a good-looking dude. 6'2", strapping guy, loved the camera and loved posing. And you might recognize a resemblance when you look at this picture of Hiram Bingham, and you might say to yourself, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yes, Hiram Bingham is known for being the inspiration behind the character Indiana Jones. 
And if you looked at a side-by-side of a picture of Indiana Jones and Hiram Bingham, you'd know exactly why. Here was your college professor who became an archaeologist, turned archaeologist, explorer, that had run-ins with locals, that was put in the middle of controversy and was looking for this lost cities of the lost city of a civilization and actually found it. There goes the inspiration for Indiana Jones. So, part one of my summer of Indiana Jones relies there on Hiram Bingham. Now, I hope you enjoyed that story. I loved my time in Peru. To really just give you a little bit more detail, if you're thinking about going to Peru, first off, I had an incredible guide. You really can't go to Machu Picchu or even hike the Inca Trail without a guide. Um, if you are heading that way anytime soon, I'm more than welcome, or I'm more than happy to uh, give you some recommendations. And uh, Hans, our guide, is now a good friend of mine. And I will be back, Hans, if you're listening. Excited to be there again with some other family members. But here's what I will say about Peru. We flew into Lima, some you know modernized city of over 10 million people, similar to like what I would think of as like Mexico City in just its scale and the amount of people and the amount of you know really rich areas and very poor areas and street markets that are entertaining. Then you fly to Cusco and you really feel like you have just gone back in time. Like a lot of places in South America and in Mexico and Central America, it has the Spanish feel. The Spanish showed up in the 1500s and all of a sudden started building churches and you have this mix of, you know, the locals and then the Spanish culture. And Machu Picchu itself is incredible. It is something that absolutely should be on your bucket list if it's not already. The other part of the trip that we did that was actually really fascinating is we then went down to Lake Titicaca. Uh, It was about a five, six hour uh, van ride actually from Cusco down to the city of Puno where Lake Titicaca is. And Lake Titicaca actually has they have these man-made islands that people have lived on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, I learned this, and this blew my mind once I got out there, that original natives, the tribal people in that area, in order to kind of run away from the Spanish and try to stay away from everyone else, they basically went out and started living on the lake. They were hiding. It it was safe. They had a lake that was protecting them from everybody else. And they built these man-made islands out of reed bamboo. Again, I'll put this on social media, so go check it out because it's hard to really picture what this means. And these floating islands throughout this large lake is just where they set up camp, where they lived lived their lives, and they didn't interact with the outside world. It wasn't until 1962, 1962, think about that, that the outside world even came into contact with the native people living out on Lake Titicaca. It then wasn't until 2005 that they actually allowed tourists in, allowed people to actually spend a night, created like one of the coolest bed and breakfasts you will ever see out on a floating island, living with the people, eating their meals like there's nowhere else to go. You take a boat out to your, 
you know, I'd call it your resort, but really it's about 50 feet by 50 feet and you're there living with the locals and living with this family. That actually was one of the coolest parts of the trip. We stayed out on this island for about two days and kind of got their way of life. They cooked all the meals for us, fresh fish. That was amazing. I had food that just tasted so, so clean. And it was quite an incredible experience to really feel that with the locals and get that cultural experience that way. Now, what was my biggest takeaway from the trip. Now, if I put my critical thinker hat on. When we toured Cusco, you obviously see, you know, this isn't a Peruvian or an Incan city anymore. This is a Spanish city. In fact, like the Incans didn't speak Spanish. It wasn't until the Spanish arrived and said, hey, we speak Spanish now and we're colonizing this nation until that became a thing. And so all of a sudden you're in this, you know, very cool European now feeling city. And we toured a cathedral that had a painting in it. And this painting is a really large painting and it made an impact on me. And it had three different groups. And it was depicting the moment that the Spanish came in contact with the Incas for the first time. And there's three groups that are portrayed in this picture. There's the Incas with the Incan emperor on a horse at the front. Then there is the Spanish army, the Spanish military with, uh, you know, spears and cannons and dressed in armor. And then the third group is the Spanish Catholic Church. It's the church, right? And they're holding uh, banners with the cross on it, and they're dressed as friars and priests and, uh, you know, the kind of that uh, Franciscan-style clergy. The three groups are all together. And the story goes like this. The Spanish show up, And their job is to basically take the natives, take these savages, and convince them of their way of life, both from a, hey, we now rule you from a Spanish side of things, but also from a religious side of things. We need to teach you religion. We are here, uh, you know, to spread the word of God. And, of course, mixed up in this want to imperialize and colonize other cities was also kind of this missionary feel. And the story goes that they handed the Incan emperor the Bible and basically said, we are sharing this with you now. Well, the Incas didn't read. So what did the Incas do? Well, they were looking for a sign. They knew that these big, scary, you know, Spanish were going to be showing up, and they wanted to be proven by their gods that this was okay, that these were good people. So they're handed the Bible. The Incan emperor then puts the Bible to his ear. He can't read. He's like listening for a sign. He's seeing what is this that they're handing me. He's never seen a book before. He puts it up to his ear, doesn't hear anything. And then he tosses the book on the ground. He throws the Bible to the floor, which was then seen as the first act of war. And a lot of these Incas were then slaughtered, war ensued, and this Incan civilization was destroyed and then assimilated into the Spanish 
uh, way of life as the Spanish colonized Peru. And so my critical thinking cap said this. I had just gone to Machu Picchu the day before we sat and stared at this picture and talked about it for a while. And it was incredible to think what the Incas pulled off. I mean, I, I had the thought looking at the top of, you know, this mountain at Machu Picchu of how long would it take and how much money would it cost with our current technology to build a city on top of a hill like this? Just the engineering, just the architecture, trying to get the machinery there. How do you flatten this land that's literally on top of a mountain and make it inhabitable? Make it something that you can farm. Like the, the feat of innovation that you would have to pull off to do that is incredible. Obviously, this empire, the Incas, were brilliant. They figured out how to live in the middle of the Andes and survive and grow crops. And not only survive, but thrive. But then the Spanish show up and call the Incas savages because they were different than them. They didn't know what they knew. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. They couldn't speak their language. These people were living in the Dark Ages, and it was the Spanish's job to now show them the light and teach them all that they were doing wrong and all that they didn't know. Not with a desire of, hey, Incas, what are you doing? What are you figuring out? Maybe we can work together here. No, it was, I'm right, you're wrong, you're different than us, you're other than us. That's not going to fly. That need to be right, that need to pick teams, that need to tell other people that might be different from you why and how they are wrong, and if they don't agree with you, then having that lead to some serious contention is something that is a, a tale. Uh, man, I just almost said a tale as old as time. We're quoting Beauty and the Beast now. But it really is. And it's sad that us as humans aren't all that good at respecting those that are different from us, trying to learn from those that are different than us, and trying to just for a second suspend our need to be right, our need to be the best, and think, well, maybe someone else has something of value to offer me that I can learn something from. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I didn't know you know, if you go to South America, the, the largest country geographically is Brazil. And then the rest of the country, you know, or the rest of the continent is a bunch of other countries. Well, I've always known that Brazil speaks Portuguese and, uh, you know, every other country in South America speaks Spanish. Well, do you know why that is? Well, when Spain and Portugal, neighbors over in Europe, started colonizing and, you know, trying to conquer South America, they got to South America and the question was, whose land was going to be who? Were they going to fight each other in South America or was there enough land that they could just divvy it up and be okay? Well, they did divvy it up, but in order to arbitrate this question of whose land was going to be who, they went to the Pope. And the Pope 
in that period of time, then looked at a rudimentary map of what we thought South America looked like at the time, drew a line down the middle trying to make it as fair as possible, and basically said, hey, this part, Portugal, all yours. This part, Spain, all yours. And still today, 500 years later almost, the Portuguese part speaks Portuguese and the Spanish part speaks Spanish. That little thought right there just blew me away. And how crazy is it that the Pope made that decision? All right, I'm just rambling at this point now. I'm going to wrap this up. But I think there is so much value in realizing that there is a world outside of yourself. We all live in a bubble. And you know what? That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. The bubble is what makes us feel safe. The bubble is what makes us feel comfortable. It's what we're used to. It's what we're accustomed to. But every once in a while, you have to remind yourself that there is life outside of the bubble. And those that live outside the bubble aren't less than just because they might think differently or act differently or talk differently than you doesn't make you better than them. Being different isn't a negative. I've read this quote before on the podcast, but I want to read it again. And this is actually from Trevor Noah. We just talked about Trevor Noah recently in the South Africa episode. I went to see Trevor Noah live and I wrote down this quote when he talked about travel because I thought it was so good. He said, travel the world. If there is one thing you will never waste your money on, it is travel. Travel the world. See another place. Discover a different point of view. Traveling is the antidote to ignorance. It changes your mind, your perspective, how you believe, what you believe. And one of the greatest things you can do when you travel is traveling to a country where they don't speak your language, just to make you realize how insignificant you really are. You're not the center of the universe. There's a whole other world that exists beyond you. I love that. Traveling is the antidote to ignorance. Always travel with the mindset to learn, to explore, and to become better yourself. So, that was my trip perusing through Peru. Part two of my summer of Indiana Jones will be happening in August, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we get closer. Until next time, clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. See you next time.